first everyone that's participated. Um, I just received a text message from Frida Norris. Uh, her husband, Ron Norris, is very weak and he's being brought into the Good Samaritan. So let me just say a prayer for him um, as, uh, before we begin this evening. Lord, I just pray for uh, the Norrises. I pray for Ron in this time. I'm not exactly sure what's going on uh, with him. Certainly, God, we know that you know. And uh, Lord, I just pray that you would uh, watch over Ron, be with him. Um, maybe confused, uh, scared, Lord. I pray that you would comfort him in this time. And Lord, be with Frida as she takes care of her husband, as I'm sure she's um, unsure of what's going on. And Lord, comfort her, ease her in this time. And uh, Lord, I even pray for Pastor Reed as he goes in to minister to them. And I pray that he'd be a sense of comfort and uh, give him the words to say as he goes there. Give them safety in this time. And Lord, be with the doctors. Give them wisdom as well. And Lord, we thank you for all things, and we know the situation's in your hands. And in your name I pray, amen. So as we begin this evening, um, we are going to be looking at 1 Kings chapter 17, verses 1 through 16. Uh, you're certainly welcome to open in your Bibles, but I have all the scripture up on the screen, so you can follow along in your Bibles, or you can uh, look on the screen as we go through. So this passage in specific is with the character in the Bible, Elijah. And I think many of us know uh, that character. Uh, many children have heard the stories in Sunday school class and such, and probably have even heard this story as well. So we're going to be starting with the first passage that Elijah appears in the scriptures. And we see that Elijah comes right in the middle of the books of First and Second Kings. He comes right at the tail end of First Kings and even goes into the book of Second Kings a little bit as well as he ministers to the land of Israel. So I'll give us this, the theme uh, right from the beginning. The theme is that God provides for his prophet and a foreign widow. Again, God provides for his prophet and a foreign widow. And if you, you, do, if you do have your Bibles open, you'll see that this passage that we're looking at, these 16 verses are often split in half. Usually you have 1 through 7, and we're going to see that story in a moment, and then you have 8 through 16 as a story as well with the widow of Zarephath. Often you have these passages uh, split up, and you can see that in your Bible as well, um, but tonight we're going to take them together. I think they have a common theme that we can carry all throughout, and uh, I think it'd be, I think it's... Um, important that we see these two stories as together. So we begin in chapter 17 of the book of 1 Kings. So the introduction to Elijah, verse 1 of chapter 17, it says, Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead. So Elijah, as I said, this is the first story, this is the first passage in the Bible that we get of Elijah, first time he appears onto the scene, and we see that he appears onto the scene of Scripture with no introduction, with no information of his early life. We don't necessarily know who he is, what his age is, or even what his occupation is. We really have no background on Elijah's earlier life. So we have to question, who is this man? What role will he play in the book of, of Kings? And even what's significant about Elijah's being in the land of Israel? As you see, he is a Tishbite. He's from Tishbe. And scholars today don't necessarily know where this is located. They don't necessarily know where this is or uh, what this city or town was like. 
But we can notice one thing, that Elijah was ministering in the land of Israel. And though we don't know a lot about Elijah's background, about who he is, who he is as a person, uh, what his family was like, we certainly know a lot about the, the land in which Elijah is ministering in, the land of Israel. At the time Elijah enters onto the scene of uh, Israel in the scriptures, Israel is in rampant idolatry. The land of Israel is living in wicked sin. To give you a picture of the wickedness that corrupted the world in which Elijah ministered, here are just a few accounts of the kings leading up to Elijah's time. So we have Jeroboam, king of Israel. 1 Kings 14, 7 through 10, it says, Go tell Jeroboam, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, because I exalted you from among the people and made you leader over my people Israel and tore the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to you, and yet you have not been like my servant David, who kept my commandments and followed me with all his heart, doing only that which was right in my eyes. But you have done evil above all who were before you and have gone and made for yourself other gods and metal images, provoking me to anger, and have cast me behind your back. Therefore, behold, I will bring harm upon the house of Jeroboam, and will cut off from Jeroboam every male, both bond and free in Israel, and will burn up the house of Jeroboam, as a man burns up dung until it is all gone. Then we have, then we have Nadab, king of Israel. 1 Kings 15, 26 he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father and in and his sin, which he made Israel to sin. Then we have Basha, king of Israel, 1 Kings 15, 34. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and he walked in the way of Jeroboam and in his sin, which he made Israel to sin. Then we have Ella, king of Israel, 1 Kings 16, 13. For all the sins of Basha and the sins of Ella, his son, which they sinned and which they made Israel to sin, provoking the Lord God of Israel to anger with their idols. Zimri, king of Israel, 1 Kings 16, 19. Because of his sins that he committed doing evil in the sight of the Lord, walking in the way of Jeroboam, and for his sin which he committed making Israel to sin. Omri, king of Israel, 1 Kings 16, 25 through 26. Omri did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did more evil than all who were before him. For he walked in all the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, and in, in, in the sins that he made Israel to sin, provoking the Lord, to, the God of Israel, to anger by their idols. And then we come to the king at the time of Elijah. We have King Ahab. And we see that he is the most evil king up to this point. So Ahab, king of Israel, it says in verses 30 through 34, And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. In his days, Hillel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Sagub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. So I read all these passages simply to give us the background of what Israel was like at the time 
that Elijah was ministering. We see the repeated phrase over and over again that these kings did evil in the sight of the Lord. And we see some of the, the same phrases that they served these idols, they served Baal, rather than the one true God. So Elijah, just picture him ministering into, in this land. He's coming onto the scene into a land that is filled with rampant idolatry, with wickedness, with people that could, give, could care less about the God of Elijah. So this is the context in which we're coming into tonight of Elijah's ministry. So now we turn to the story. Elijah declares a drought to Ahab, verse 1. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Now coming again, we come on to the... To the scene of Elijah's story with no background, so we don't necessarily know what Elijah's relationship was like with Ahab. Did he meet him before? Did they have a prior relationship? Or was this the first time he was speaking to Ahab? We don't know, but what we can say, see either way is that what Elijah is saying to this king, the king over all of Israel, is bold. What he's saying to him is a bold declaration. Here we see against the backdrop of an idolatrous nation who doesn't have a care in the world for God and his ways, one who has faith. One who has faith only in the one living and true God, and he's his servant. He stands before the God of Israel, willing to do his righteous bidding. So we have this against the backdrop of this idolatry, one who is willing to serve just one God, the true and living God. But not only is Elijah declaring his faith in relationship to the Lord God, but even more so, he's speaking out against his God. So in Elijah declaring this drought, he's actually speaking against the God of Ahab, Baal. Remember in 1 Kings 16, 30 through 32, it said, And Ahab the son of Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. So in Elijah declaring a drought, he is attacking the belief in Baal. And just to give you a little bit of background on this god, this idol Baal, he was the God of fertility, the God of rain for those that worshipped him. So they believed that Baal was ultimately the one that was sending the rain. He was allowing the crops to be able to grow. That is what they believed. So I make the point that Elijah is actually attacking the God Baal or this idol Baal. And I think the, the ESV study Bible puts it nicely when it says, In Canaanite religion, Baal had authority over rain and fertility. The absence of rain meant the absence of Baal, who must periodically submit to the god of death, Mot, during the dry season, only to be revived at a later date and once again water the earth during the rainy season. This cyclical and polytheistic view of reality is the focus of Elijah's challenges. Elijah worships a single god who lives and yet, while living, can deny both dew and rain to the land. The Lord, not Baal, brings fertility. And the Lord's presence in judgment, not his absence in death, leads to infertility. So Elijah is showing here that it is not your unliving God, Baal, who is in control of the weather, but it's my God. My God will not provide rain. 
We see, even, we see this even further in Elijah attacking the worship of Baal. If we look a chapter over at a very familiar passage, Elijah versus the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, we would see this same thing, Elijah attacking this belief in Baal, the false idol. So what was Ahab's reaction? We're not given it. What we are given is, Eli is that Elijah gets off the scene. And I'll make this point here. We see that this, these first seven verses at least are very, they're kind of the bare minimum. We're not given too, too much action, but I think the author of First Kings is trying to make or trying to drive home a point which we'll look at very soon. So we're not given Ahab's reaction, but we see the story continues as Elijah gets off the scene. So we see Elijah is directed by the Lord to a brook to hide, verses 2 through 3. It says, And the word of the Lord came to him, Depart from here and turn eastward, and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. So we see God gives Elijah the direction on where to go next. And though we're not given Ahab's reaction, we see that the Lord tells him to hide. All right, so we can kind of assume here what Ahab's reaction was. And the Lord telling him, Go there and hide. We do see that Ahab had been searching for Elijah as he would be looked at as the reason for no water. As we see in a chapter over in chapter 18, when Elijah was told by the prophet Obadiah. So we'll look at this passage very quick to show. All right, so I, I don't think the screen's working. I might have had a dead battery. So I guess I'll have you, if you don't mind, opening up your Bibles, if you don't have them open already, uh, to chapter 17 of the book of First Kings. Well, it came up now. Uh, I think we'll just go with the Bibles because it's, it's a little bit slow for tonight. So feel free to open up your Bibles to First Kings chapter 17, and we'll, we'll kind of stick there. We're just moving through this passage. Sorry about that. All right, so First Kings, uh, actually, we're just looking at chapter over, chapter 18, verses 7 through 10, and we see that Elijah is told by another prophet that Ahab had been looking for him. So chapter 18 of 1 Kings, verses 7 through 10, it reads, And as Obadiah was on the way, behold, Elijah met him. And Obadiah recognized him and fell on his face and said, Is it you, my lord, Elijah? And he answered him, It is I. Go tell your lord, behold, Elijah is here. And he said, How have I sinned that you would give your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? And as the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my Lord has not sent to seek you. And when they would say he is not here, he would take an oath of the kingdom or nation that they had not found you. So we see here in chapter 18, Ahab had been searching from kingdom to kingdom, from nation to nation, looking all over for Elijah. And we see, as we're going to see in our passage, that God ultimately hides him. So we see then that God provides protection as he leads him to this brook and has him hide. Next, we see Elijah is provided with water and food by the Lord. Chapter 17, verse 4. You shall drink from the brook, and I, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So God sets up provision for Elijah. Water to drink from the brook and food from ravens. And at first glance, if you've heard this story before, you hear about ravens feeding Elijah. If you've read this story many times, you may just kind of take this at face value. You might not think about it too much, but ravens feeding someone, ravens coming down to feed you, is not normal. So we see this is the care and the provision of God. It's the care and the provision set up by God. 
Next, in verse 5, we see Elijah obeys and trusts in the Lord's provision. Verse 5, it says, So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Cherith, that is east of the Jordan. So we see Elijah, he does exactly what God told him to do. He follows his command, and we see Elijah's dependence. We see his reliance upon the Lord. Now again, realize the situation that Elijah's in. He's told to go travel to this brook and hide there to get his water from this brook, and to be fed by ravens. These are not normal circumstances. Elijah had to have faith in his God in this circumstance. Though God's promise is abnormal, we see Elijah is provided for just as the Lord had promised. Verse 6, it reads, And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. And then in verse 7, we find out that eventually Elijah's water source runs out. As it reads, And after a while the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. So application. So we've made our way through the first seven verses. And the application that we see, and I'd say the overarching point that is being driven home, that we see that there's not too much detail this, to this story, but the, the point that we can pull out is God's provision God's care for his prophet. God's care and provision for his prophet, and we see he provides for his people. Though the rest of the land was being hit with drought, God provided for Elijah in miraculous ways, feeding him with ravens, supplying him with a water source for a time being, while, he was keeping, while keeping him hidden from those who may be hunting his life. So we can learn that God, he also provides for us today. This may seem obvious, it may seem like a great reminder from the passage, but I ask you the question, how often do you live with this reality in mind that God provides? How often do you live with this reality in mind that God provides for us today? Three things about this truth that I'd like to point out and make us think about. Three things about this truth that we learn from this passage that God provided for Elijah and he provides for us today. The first is that this is a forgotten truth. This is a forgotten truth in that as you think about your life, how often do you go throughout your day completely ignoring God's provision for your life? It could be as simple as not thanking him for the food he has provided in a meal that you are about to partake in. Or maybe more of a distressing situation. Your car is broken down, your job searching and there have been no results, your family is falling apart, and in all these things you do not turn to God or look to him for how he is providing or will provide. So I know often for me that this is a forgotten truth. This is something that I go throughout my everyday life forget, forgetting that God has provided in the past and that God promises that he will provide in the future. Secondly, this is a comforting truth. This is a comforting truth in that God's provision allows you to realize that God is much more powerful. He is far more wiser. He sees the big picture. And he has provided for me in the past, and he will provide for me in the future. Everything is taken care of, and though God does not always give us what we think we need or how we think we need things to happen, think of Elijah being fed by ravens. God provides how he sees fit, and that provision is perfect. And then lastly, we see about this truth that it is a unique truth only about God. This is a unique truth only about God in that we saw that it is God and God only who's ultimately the provider. We think back to Baal, who Elijah's making this declaration. He's promising that there will be no rain. 
and he's attacking the god Baal. So it's not, it's not Baal or any other idol who provided the rain in the days of Elijah, and we see that ultimately all that we have comes from nothing else but God. We cannot ultimately look to our jobs to provide, or even people or things in our life. It's ultimately God who's the one providing. So we can see the story ending here, as I said. Oftentimes you might see in your Bibles this uh, passage kind of broken off here, maybe entitled the Brook of Cherith, or that Elijah has uh, proclaimed a drought. But I submit to us that, or I, for this evening, we're going to actually move on in the passage to the second passage and see how we shouldn't stop just at verse 7 for a well-known uh, even valuable lesson, but we move on and we find maybe more of an unexpected or surprising application that we can pull away, an application or a lesson that we can pull away from this story that is unexpected. So moving on, in the text we see that the Lord continues to provide, verses 8 through 9 of chapter 17. It reads, Then the word of the Lord came to him, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So we see that God provided for Elijah at the brook of Cherith. He provides for him food. He provides for him, wa he provides for him food, water, and even protection from King Ahab. Since the brook had dried up, God sends him to Zarephath to be provided for. So we see God's continued provision. But it's not only Elijah whom he, God provides for, but he provides for someone unexpected. Elijah is sent to a land that does not belong to Israel. This is a different nation a different land. Zarephath is in Sidon, which was the kingdom that Ahab's wife Jezebel came from. We read that in the text earlier about King Ahab. We see that Jezebel was actually from this nation, a foreign nation, a nation that is not part of God's chosen people. And also, this is no nearby uh, neighboring village or town, but it's an 80 or 90 mile journey from the brook of Cherith all the way to Zarephath that Elijah would have to make. Verses 10 through 11. So he arose and went to Zarephath, and when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. So we see Elijah, he obeys, and he meets this widow. Then from verse 12, we see that the woman responds by saying that she has nothing that she can provide. As it says in verse 12, And she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar, and a little oil in a jug. And now I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. And then verse 13 and 14, we see that the Lord provides through this widow who doesn't have much. As it says in verse 13, And Elijah said to her, Do not fear, go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. And afterward, make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. So we see here, just taking a pause in our passage, we see here that Elijah, he could have easily gotten worried. The woman whom he was sent to has no food to give. She doesn't even have food for her and her child. This doesn't look like provision, but we see that Elijah, he trusts in his God and what God had commanded him to, to go there and a woman would feed him. 
And then closing out the passage, it reads in verses 15 through 16, And she went and did as Elijah said. And she and he and her husband in her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. So we see the woman obeyed, and the Lord provided through this woman who at first had nothing. But we see that the Lord provided abundantly for both Elijah and this widow in her household. So application, again, from this story, and we see the connection here, we see God's provision. We see the connection between the story of the brook of Cherith, and then we see the connection between the widow of Zarephath. We see the driving point of God's provision. We see God's provision for his prophet. In the brook Cherith, he provides for Elijah by giving him water, by giving him food by ravens. He gives him protection. And then we see the same thing as he goes to Zarephath. We see that Elijah is provided for by God in that he provides through this widow. Nevertheless, we see that God is a God who provides. But I'd submit to you there's a striking point here in this passage. The striking point from this second passage that continues this theme throughout these two passages and this story as a whole is that of God's provision for a poor, widowed, foreign woman. Not only is she poor, not only is she a widow, but she's a foreigner. She's from an enemy nation. She's not one of the Israelites. She's not one of God's chosen people. She is from an enemy nation of Sidon. So for us, we can see that God provides for the social outcast and those whom we may be in conflict with, other nations, other races, those of a different social status. All right, as we see that God doesn't only provide for the expected, but we see in our story this evening that he provides for the unexpected, the poor, the widow, from another nation other than Israel. And I think before we write this application off, before we start to think that this is a stretch of the story, I want us to turn, and it, I believe the PowerPoint's working again, but feel free to turn with me to Luke chapter 4, and we're actually going to see how Jesus deals with this story from the Old Testament. Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 30, and we see that Jesus actually uses this story of the widow of Zarephath as an illustration of a point that he is making. So again, before we uh, maybe make this application or lesson, thinking it's a stretch of the story that God provides for the social outcast, for the poor, for the widow, even for other nations, the enemy nations, we'll see what Jesus does with this story. So Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 30, and I'll read straight through these verses, and then I'll make several remarks summing up what Jesus says, and then we'll, we'll see what is, uh, how this passage connects with ours this evening. So verse 16, it says, And he came to Zarephath, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He enrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering the sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Verse 20. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke 
well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, or Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown, but in truth I tell you, there were, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. So a few remarks that I'll make about this passage, bringing it together, summing it up, and then we'll see what it has to do, and we'll zero in on the connection between what Jesus says and our passage for this evening. So first remark is that here we have Jesus standing up in the synagogue reading an Old Testament passage. This was the, the Bible of Jesus' day, and specifically it's from the book of Isaiah. And he declares that this scripture that he read was fulfilled in him that day. He goes on to say that he is not accepted by his hometown as they were seeking, as they were not seeking to follow or to submit to what he wanted, but they wanted him to do what they wanted him to do. Here Jesus cites two illustrations from the scriptures, one of them being our text for this evening, and the other one somewhat of a similar story with a foreigner from an enemy nation, Naaman, who was a leper, and he was healed by the prophet Elisha. These examples express a unified point that Jesus' ministry will reach beyond the Jews, which was his hometown, to the Gentiles not discluding the Jews, but including the Gentiles as well in God's blessing and in God's provision. Jews were God's chosen people way back in the Old Testament, as we have with Abraham, with Isaac, with the children of Israel. And the Gentiles were all those other nations other than Israel. The response of his hometown is interesting, as we see when Jesus says that he said, what, when Jesus says what he says and cites these examples, the Jews of his town become murderous. They want to kill him. For including the Gentiles under the blessing, the salvation of God. The Jews and the Gentiles were opposed to each other. They were hostile. They did not like each other. They worshipped different. They held different beliefs. And they did not associate with each other. That's why the Jews wanted to throw Jesus off the cliff. That's why they wanted to kill Jesus and that is why Jesus' hometown became murderous, as he included the Gentiles whom they were opposed to in his ministry. So bringing these passages together, connecting them, we see that Jesus is teaching and his mission to care about for not only the Jews, but also the Gentiles. And letting that bear witness on our text for this evening, we see that God cares, he's concerned for, he provides for the poor, the unwanted Gentile, just as he does Elijah, his prophet. So what is this to teach us? What are we to take away from this text? I believe we learn a very important and valuable lesson as God cares for the social outcast, as we have with the poor widow of Zarephath. 
Possibly for us, this could be someone in our society who's homeless, who's disabled, someone who does not have parents, someone who has lost a wife or a husband. We are to care for them too. But also, and possibly, I'd say even more tough, is that God cares for the Gentile. The foreigner, as we see with the woman of Zarephath, she would have been looked at by the Israelites as not belonging to Israel, as an enemy, and this would not have been someone that the Israelites would have uh, tried to care for in general. So I ask, who are the Gentiles today? Submit to you that someone who we may be opposed to, someone we might be hostile towards, an enemy, because of their social status, their ethnicity, or even their race. God cares and provides for them, so we are too as well. We're to seek to get along, we're, seek, we're to seek to be unified with them. So what are we to learn from 1 Kings chapter 17, verses 1 through 16? That God is a God who provides. He cares, who is concerned for not only the expected, but for the unexpected as well. Not only those like us, not only those who have the same interests as us, not only those who live in the same country as us, but also the unexpected, those who are needy, those who we might normally be opposed to. We see that God used Elijah in going to Zarephath to not only provide for himself, but God uses him to, pro to provide for the widow at Zarephath and her household. Who might God be using us to provide for? If that be the message of salvation, to share the gospel with someone who is needy or someone who you might not usually or normally associate with. If that be helping someone materially, providing them with food or clothing. So two things I want to challenge us this evening to walk away from this text. I think the two things we can pull um, from this text and sum them all up is first, God provides for his people. God provides for his prophet, as we see in Elijah. He provides for the expected. But secondly, and I think even maybe more of a tougher one to grasp, to actually live out, is that secondly, God provides for the social outcast and the foreigner, as he did with the widow of Zarephath. God provides for the unexpected, and I believe this passage challenges us to do the same. Let us pray together. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity uh, that we have to come before you this evening as uh, your church, as your people, and Lord, I thank you for our um, alike common faith in you and uh, your sacrifice for us on the cross. And God, I just thank you as we get to look at uh, the scriptures, be able to study them. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to walk away this evening uh, with a renewed sense of your care, of your provision. I pray that would be a great reminder. But Lord, at the same time, I pray that would be a challenge for us to provide for other people. Lord, maybe for those that we don't usually get along with, those that uh, may be uh, looked down in society at, Maybe those that have sinned in grievous ways or those that are not alike us in interests. Maybe they're from a different country, Lord. I pray that we would seek to care for them as well. As God, you care for those people. And Lord, I thank you as this is a refreshing message, but also I think it's a provoking lesson, Lord. And I pray that we take away from this and seek as we go into our workplaces tomorrow, as we go into our schools, as we go into our families, our neighborhoods, I pray that we'd seek to live these things out. Lord, we thank you for being a God who cares, for being a God who provides, and Lord, that's so comforting, and I pray that you would uh, remind us of that as we move throughout our weeks uh, this week. Lord, we thank you for all things, and we thank you for the great ways that you provide for us. 
And in your name I pray, amen. Thank you, Isaac, for running the PowerPoint, and thank you, everyone, for coming out, and you are dismissed.